many of you have been to the, see the movie Courageous? Raise your hand if you've been to see the movie. Come on, raise it up big, okay? How many of you were going to go see it? You just haven't yet. Okay, the rest of you that didn't raise your hand, shame on you, okay? <laughs> you need to see the movie Courageous. It, uh, we went as a church, we bought out one of the movie theaters, uh, one of the showings, and I believe it's still on. It's well worth seeing. We're going to, for the next four weeks, be talking about living courageously. Uh, courageous is just a one-word title, Courageous. Especially courageous when you think about the future, as we were talking and singing about that today, as, as the choir was singing, He Still Leads. When trials come my way, when those words were sung, I don't know if you noticed, but there was something happening in the choir that was from their heart. Because many of them are going through life battles right now where trials have come, and it is tough. How do we follow the Lord? How can we be courageous when we don't know what's ahead? I believe the biggest problem that we have in our country right now is Starbucks. I believe Starbucks has ruined us as a nation. And you say, what are you talking about? Well, I ran across this article, and I think that this, I, I really think it's the gospel according to Starbucks. What we, what we feel like is we feel like we should be able to go and order life like you order a Starbucks coffee. This is what the article said. Wouldn't you love to mix and match the ingredients of your future? Give me a tall, extra hot cup of adventure. Cut the dangers with two good shots, uh, two shots of good health on the side. I'll take a decaf brew of longevity, please. Sprinkle in fertility, having a little trouble with the kids. Go ahead, uh, go heavy on the agility, but please cut out all the disability from my cup. I'll have a pleasure mocha with extra stirrings of indulgence. Make sure it's consequence free. I would like a grande happy latte with a dollop of love sprinkled with Caribbean retirement. That's my order. I like that one. And the, what the author said, take me to that coffee shop, too bad it doesn't exist. The truth is life often hands us a concoction entirely different from the one we requested. You ever feel as though the barista from above called your name and handed you a cup you really didn't want that day? That's really what's happened in our life. We want what we want, when we want it, how we want it. Our daughter, Elizabeth decided to go back and finish her bachelor's degree at the University of Texas. And she called and she said, Dad, I'm so excited. You know, we've, I've been working toward this and I'm going to go back and get my degree and, and it's going to be really financially tough. And so what she said is, I prayed, Lord, I want to finish my bachelor's degree, then have kids. And the Lord said, surprise, you'll be having kids first. You're pregnant. And the truth is, she had two children while she was finishing up that last few years of college. Real life comes caffeinated with surprises, modifications, transitions, alterations, or you could insert altercations in there. God gives us uh, examples in the Bible of those who were trying to order their life in a certain way, and it happened some other way. And I believe that the more extreme the life circumstances are, that are thrown at you, the more opportunity you have for courage. This is God's opportunity for us to see courage in action. And over the next four weeks, we're going to look at some people that God has placed in the Bible to show us what courage is all about. Men and women. The movie is more about the men that, that have had some courage in their family. And believe me, we need this. 
but also for the women. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Ruth chapter 1. In Ruth, there's a, there's a great verse. Ruth 1.16 says, But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where, I go, uh, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. You see, there's two things that we need to look at when we're starting to think about how to have courage to face the future, the things that we don't know uh, what are going to happen in the near future for us. How, number one, is how do we usually react to a challenge? How do you react to, to a circumstance, to an event, to, to a person in your life that you are not counting on, and, and things take a turn the way that you didn't want them to take? How do we usually react? Ruth chapter 1, we're going to read the whole chapter. I want you to read it, uh, just read it silently as I read it out loud. This is what it says. In the days when the judges ruled, I want to stop there for just a second. They've come into the land. They've conquered parts of the land. They don't take all of the land. Israel is there in the nation. They're in Canaan, and they've conquered part of it. And instead of having kings, they have judges. And what does it say in Judges? It says it was a time when every man did what was right in his own eyes. Was that a good thing? No, it was not at all. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Moab was on the other side of the Dead Sea. You went through a desert, and you went up to a a plain, and there was a very fertile area there right by a river. The man's name, verse 2, was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites. They were from Bethlehem, Ephrata. And so they're Ephrathites from, uh, from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malan and Kilian died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. We kind of just skim over that part, but don't, but don't do that. Stop for a second. There was a famine that drove her out of her home. They made the drastic choice to leave there, to go to live somewhere else. She's there. Her husband dies. Her two sons have married, and both of her sons have died. This woman has lost everything. Look at verse 6. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughter-in-law, daughters-in-law prepared to go return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you, as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud, and, she, and, and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. Just again, a word of explanation in the time that this was written, and even in the time of Christ, 
if a woman had sons and one of her sons died, then the, the next son along was to marry that widow so that the family name would be carried on. It's not a tradition we've carried on in the U.S., praise God, okay? My wife has said, you know, since I have four brothers, she said, this is a really good thing that this doesn't still happen. Verse 14, at this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Come, uh, go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God, where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the woman exclaimed, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Uh, I think that they wrote a song about this in modern vernacular. It's called Gloom, Despair, and Agony on Me. Hee-haws, for those of you who didn't get that. Verse 22. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. How do we usually react to a challenge? This is a horrible thing that has happened to this family. There are three, things, three ways that many times this is the typical way we react. Number one, we may be deterred. We, we may be deterred. That's a word that maybe you don't use in everyday language. Webster's Dictionary says it means we can be turned aside. We can have our action prevented by fear. You're going one direction, and that's exactly what happened with these two daughters-in-law and they were, one of them was deterred. One of them was moved, was changed off of the course because of, of something that happened. What happens is fear. So many times we're so afraid. Each sunrise seems to bring reasons for fear. Max Lucado, uh, in, in a, a paragraph in a book called Fearless, says it this way. They're talking layoffs at work, slowdowns in the economy, flare-ups in the Middle East, turnovers at headquarters, downturns in the housing market, upswings in global warming, breakouts of al-Qaeda cells. Some demented dictator is collecting nuclear warheads the way others collect fine wines. The plague of our day, terrorism, begins with the word terror. We fear being sued. We fear finishing last. We fear going broke. We fear the mole on the back, the new kid on the block, the sound of the clock as it ticks us closer to the grave. We sophisticate investment plans. We create elaborate security systems, and we legislate stronger military, yet we depend on mood-altering drugs more than any generation in history. Now get this one. Moreover, ordinary children today are more fearful than psychiatric patients were in the 1950s. We're afraid. And because of fear, we, we, we turn and do something. And that's really the story that happened here. From the very beginning, when this man left with his wife, he was afraid they were going to starve in Bethlehem. Here's the irony. The word Bethlehem means the house of bread. So they went from the bread basket to another place because they were starving. And they lived there for over 10 years, long enough for these two women to get married and their, their husbands uh, to die. 
And Ruth and Orpah had every reason to stay in Moab. There was really good reason for fear. Look at what they went through. If they made a movie of these people's lives, what would they call it? I, call, I think it would be three funerals and a famine. It's a horrible thing if you think about what they went through. They lost everybody that was close to them. I mean, you would be afraid to even make friends because you'd, you'd be afraid they'd die. If they left, they'd be abandoning their family, their friends, their homeland, their prospect of remarriage. What, really what Naomi says to the girls is true. You have no chance if you come with me. Your only chance is to stay here. In fact, a lot of people would argue that Orpah was the one who embraced reality more than Ruth. Let's go a step further. I said that this was at the time of Judges. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. In Judges chapter 19, there is a horrible story of a grisly rape. This man comes with his, with his mistress, with his concubine. He comes in to Bethlehem, to this place, to lodge for the night. And this woman is, is brutally gang-raped and murdered. And so he cuts her into 12 pieces and sends one of the 12 pieces to each of the tribes and says, this is what happened to me here in the breadbasket of Israel. So was it safe for two or three women to travel by themselves on the roads to go back to Bethlehem? Absolutely not. There's a whole story of the, of the, the, the Good Samaritan who comes along, and it was on the road that they would have to take where the Good Samaritan was, was robbed and beaten and left for dead that these women would have to go on. What deters you? Are there dozens of reasons to play it safe? In, in Luke chapter 9, when Jesus is speaking, he says, listen, there's a lot of reasons. You're going to give a lot of reasons why you don't follow me. There was a man who said, Lord, I'll follow you. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. There, there's a lot of controversy over that verse. Was the dad dead? Some Bible commentators say, well, the man wasn't even dead. His dad wasn't dead. He was saying, give me a couple of years and I'll be there. We don't know for sure if that's true. But even if the father was dead, it sounds very horrible for Jesus to say, leave your dead father and come follow me. But the Lord was trying to point out that we can have all kinds of excuses for not following him, for not, not following when Jesus leads. We are deterred by so many things in our life. That's one reaction that we normally have when circumstances get tough. Number two, we may become dejected. We may become dejected. Orpah turned back. Ruth did not. But Naomi is the one who responds in this way. She becomes dejected. What does she say? The Lord doesn't like me anymore. God is against me. The God of my fathers has afflicted me, she says. She becomes bitter. What causes bitterness? I, I think there are several things. Festering or unresolved anger is one of those things. Have you ever gotten really angry at somebody and you say, no, I'm going to do the Christian thing. I'm going to shove it way down inside and I'm just not going to talk about it anymore. I'm not going to confess it. I'm not going to forgive the person. I'm just not going to deal with it right now. And so you just put that anger and you just kind of, you just kind of push it into your heart and you don't do anything with it. And it sits there and it festers and it, and it builds. Have you ever done something like that? I've told some people before, I used to, to cut stained glass, enjoyed cutting stained glass, and I would do it barefoot out in a, in a little shed at Cal Farley's Boys Ranch. Not a really smart thing to do, by the way, but it was hot. We were in Texas. You know, in Texas, they didn't wear a whole lot of shoes. So I was barefoot, and I was cutting stained glass. The glass would fall on the floor, and you would walk across the floor, and every now and then, you would step on a piece of glass, and you would think you got it out, and you, you, would, you, know, you, would, you would work on it a little bit with tweezers or a pocket knife or you know, a staple or whatever you could find, and you'd get the glass out. We're guys. We do things like that. 
And you get the glass out and you'd be okay, except a month later or a week later or sometime later, all of a sudden you look at the bottom of your foot and there was this big festering sore because you didn't get the glass out. You didn't take care of what it was that was causing the damage to your foot. And what we have done when we have that anger that we hold on to, that we never give over to God, it festers inside us and it eats us up and it rots us from the inside out. It becomes bitterness. Sometimes bitterness comes because we make false presumptions. We, we, we presume things about God that are not true. God won't let bad things happen to me. God will give me exactly what I want. If anybody teaches you that prosperity gospel stuff, take them to Ruth. God's always going to bless me. God's always going to do what I want. They lost their husbands. They had no children, no future, no income. That will pretty much solve that whole prosperity gospel deal, won't it? God let them go through a tough time. A famine was usually caused by a drought. That meant there was no water falling in. And if Israel didn't get their water, we know what happens here in Shasta Lake when we don't have rain for a season or two. What happens? We get to see how they built the, the dam because you can see the, the ironwork and the steelwork way down in the water. And it gets hundreds of feet low. And when you do that, you go by there and you think, wow, what are we going to do if we don't have rain? What if it went 10 years like that, like it did in Israel? A drought. Have you had a financial drought, a personal drought, a business drought, marriage drought, spiritual drought? It's dry and it's dusty and it's arid. And you think, I'll never be able to quench this thirst. And it leads to dejection. You think, if God loved me, he would do something. Hebrews 12, 15 says this. Listen, see to it that no one misses the grace of God. And that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and and to defile many. That bitter root that grows up, it can be from that anger that you've never handled, you've never turned over to the Lord. Or maybe that you're angry at God because he's not doing what you thought he was going to do. And that bitterness begins to come up and that bitter root grows up. And all of a sudden it it, it affects everything. It, it, It infects everything. We may become dejected. And here's the third way that you can react to a catastrophe, to a crisis, to a challenge. We can make a life-changing decision. We can make a life-changing decision. What I like about Ruth is that, you know, sometimes we have stories of David. He comes up against a giant, and he's this nine-foot-tall guy, and this big, huge spear, and it's dramatic. It would make a great movie. It's an action movie. You need to get Steven Spielberg there so he can stretch some guy nine feet tall with this big, huge spear. Or, or you have some other stories. There's big, big armies facing each other, and they're, they're fighting out. It's a big action movie. Ruth is not an action movie. Ruth is this quiet thing where this one woman just says, listen, I'm going with you. And Naomi says, no, don't. Stay, go, who cares? What does it matter? And Ruth speaks with conviction and determination. Nothing would dissuade her. Nothing could persuade her to to stay home. She was going to go do what she wanted to do. Reminds me of a teacher that I read again about. Her name was Krista. She didn't just lecture, she believed in, in teaching her students by experience. When she had a lab, she would make sure that every one of them was doing the lab. When she was talking to them about history, she would dress up in the costumes and make the children dress up in the costumes. Even to the point when she was in high school, she had these people playing out the parts of Thomas Jefferson and, and Benjamin Franklin and, and George Washington and all the, the polit- political people. But when it came to, to math and science, she especially loved that. And, and she got so engrossed in that. And, and she applied to go on to NASA. You know, Krista. 25 years ago, 
Krista McAuliffe and six other astronauts died aboard the Challenger space shuttle. Krista McAuliffe, who loved teaching and loved students and loved to teach by example. And her husband, Stephen, he's now a federal judge in Concord, New Hampshire. He released a statement on the 25th anniversary in January of this year. I know Krista would say that this is the most precious lesson ever learned. Ordinary people can make extraordinary contributions when they enthusiastically pursue their own dreams wherever they lead. Our family knows that generations of students and teachers will continue to share her love of learning, her love of life, and will do great things for our world. And they asked Stephen McCullough if you could change her mind, and he just laughed, and he said, no one could possibly change Krista's mind when she put her mind to it. One of her students, Holly Merrill, graduated from Concord High in 1986. She teaches in Portland, Maine, and Holly was taught by Krista McAuliffe in a class about uh, history. She, crawled, re, she recalled that she made lessons fun, interesting, and real. Today, she has her students dress up in costumes. On the day that they questioned her, she was George Washington. She made a life-changing decision. You say, well, she threw her life away. Really? Her students didn't think so. Her husband didn't think so. Her family didn't think so. And as a nation, we ought to be proud of those who are willing to give their life to make a life changing decision to stand strong. Joshua 24, 15, there are time after time in the Bible we're told, if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Have you ever, in the midst of a challenge, in the midst of a time when things got tough and you thought, I can't go anymore, do you go back and you look at that decision and you say, I've made a life-changing decision. My life will never be the same because of what God has done in my life. And you stand strong. How do we usually react to a challenge? And here's the other part. How do I refine courage? If you want to make this life-changing uh, decision, if you want to de be determined like Ruth was, like Krista McAuliffe, how do you do that? How do you refine courage? Ruth 3, I think, tells us, uh, gives us some hints. Ruth chapter 3, we're just going to read a few verses, starting with verse 7. Ruth, uh, to set the background a little bit, she goes out into the field. In Israel, they allowed the poor women to go out if they didn't have a family, if they didn't have food. They could go to the edges of the field, and they could harvest around the edges. And they were told to leave extra barley or extra grapes or extra corn or whatever it was that they were, that they were harvesting. Any of the grains, anything in the field, they were to leave some of the edges for the poor people. And she went out, and when she did, this guy saw her and said, Who is that woman out there? And his name was Boaz. And he took a shining to her. He, he liked what he saw. And he was an older man, obviously. But she, she saw him as very kind. And they started talking a little bit. And then we joined the action in Ruth chapter 7, verse 3. When Boaz, Boaz had finished eating and drinking, it was the night of the harvest, the big harvest festival. And was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. It's dark. Come on, this is a good question. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. That word's used 14 times in this book. A kinsman redeemer was a near relative. 
And he took pity on someone who had lost their husband or they were in a situation where they had no husband and he could come and he could redeem the property. He could buy back the property so that it would stay in the family name. And if he really wanted to, he could marry the person and become her husband. And she said, you are the kinsman redeemer. Look at verse 10. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am near, uh, I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem, good, let him redeem. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone, could be rec- before anyone could be recognized, and he said, don't let it be known that a woman has come to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and put it on her. Then he went back to town. That's kind of an, an odd story. It's not, again, a, a habit a social thing that we would do, but if a woman wanted to approach a man, she would sometimes do this. She would go and she would lie at his feet. She would cover with the blanket that he was covering with, especially uh, this was at a, a celebration. There were probably many people in the barn that night, and she did that to, be, to, let, to have the opportunity to talk to him and say, I want you to be my kinsman redeemer. So how do I refine courage? That's a pretty courageous thing for a woman to do who's a foreigner, it's pretty courageous. How, did, how can we do that? Number one, embrace change. Embrace change. Change is a part of life, but change is more than just a part of life. It's a necessary part of God's strategy. If you stay the same, God probably is not changing you the way he needs to change you. For us to change the world, God will alter our assignments. Many new assignments are frightening. If you have a new assignment that God gives you, you may not like that assignment. Have you ever been given an assignment that God, that God gave you that did, you didn't know for sure if you liked it? How many of you are parents? Raise your hand. Okay, that was one assignment. You thought you wanted that. You had no idea what you signed up for, did you? Uh, we, uh, we had a text from Chris and Sherry, our uh, son and daughter-in-law that live in Florida now, and he texted us and he sent a picture of the new baby, Gabriella. Then he said, here's this little round face and she's happy and she's so cute. And I wrote back, she looks so cute and happy. And he said, cute always, happy rarely. <laughs> he didn't have to say a lot more, did he, when he texted that back. We know what he means. It means there's not a whole lot of sleeping going on at their house. It hasn't been all summer, all, all fall. We understand sometimes that we have new assignments. Think about some of the assignments in the Old Testament. Gideon, he went from wheat farmer to military general. He's down there trying to to thresh his wheat, hiding, and all of a sudden he becomes a general. Joseph, he was this targeted baby. He was this this little boy that, that that was out there that was hated by his brothers, and he became the Egyptian prince because he was sold into slavery. Mary, in the New Testament, she was an engaged teen, and she became Jesus' mother. David was a shepherd and became Israel's king. Peter, he was a fisherman, and then he was a guy who stuck his foot in his mouth and became one of the early church fathers, early early church leaders. How about Moses? Moses is this little baby in a basket, and he's supposed to be uh, he's he's supposed to be executed. But instead of executing this little baby, he ends up being the leader of two million Israelites as they leave Egypt to go to the Promised Land. But when, how did that start out? Uh, Exodus chapter 4, look what it says. 
The Lord has spoken, spoken to him this burning bush. He says, I want you to be the leader. And the Lord says, now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, oh Lord, please send someone else to do it. I hate change. That's what he says. How many times has the Lord given you an opportunity? He's given you a challenge and what you say is, oh, I don't want to change. I'm so comfortable the way I am. Don't resist change. Accept it. And every time I say that, somebody comes to me and says, well, this is what they say. How about changes that are tragic? How about things that are thrown at us that don't seem to have any purpose in life? How about that deformed child? How about a devastating natural disaster? I've thought a lot about this, and I, again, I read someone, a Bible teacher who was teaching on this, and he really got me to thinking. And so I want you to do this. I want you to think back. Some of you, this may take you back a few years. I want you to think back when you were in the womb. You don't remember? Let me help you just a little bit, okay? By the time you're three months, six months, a lot of things are developing, right? I know by the time you're, I think about halfway through, four, four and a half months, you have fingernails, you have eyelashes, you have a nose, you have eyes. All these things are developed by the time you're four or five months old. How much seeing do you do in the womb? You have a nose. How much breathing do you do in the womb? You have fingernails. Sometimes the babies come out and the fingernails need to be clipped the first day because they've grown so long while they're in the womb. Are you kidding me? How, how much do they need fingernails in the womb? How, those things just don't make a lot of sense. And if we could speak in the womb, I know that they've had movies where they do this, but I don't think that really happens. But if we could speak in the womb while we're in the womb, we would say, God, why did you give me eyes? There's nothing to see. Why did you give me this nose? It makes no sense. What is this weird thing on the front of my face? I'm really glad I have a nose. It keeps my glasses up now. I think that's really a nice thing that God put there. Why do I have ears? Well, I can hear little things, but I don't really need the, the flaps out here. And, they're, you know, I'm always catching them. And, and, you know, why do I have all these other things? In fact, why do I have legs? Because I'm not walking. We're in the, when they're in the womb, it doesn't seem to make any sense. Oh, but when you're born, it all makes sense. We've had some people who've gone home this week. Reggie Watkins, we had the service on Friday. Reggie went home to be with the Lord on Monday. And some of the things that didn't seem to make sense, the noses and the eyes and the bumps and the things that didn't seem to make sense, I think Reggie understands all of them today. And those things that seem to be absolutely crazy to you that don't make sense, the suffering, the tragedy, the loneliness that seems useless now is going to make sense. Sometimes you can make a little sense of it. Our daughter and son, uh, and son-in-law, Liz and Sam, they have a baby that has Down syndrome. He celebrated his fourth birthday. He still struggles in a lot of ways. He's, you know, he's way behind in development like most Down syndrome kids are. But he's beginning to say words and he's beginning to have these other things. And she writes a blog in October. Every October she writes this blog, uh, Red Hot Lincoln. Is that what it is? Hot Rod Lincoln. I always get it wrong. It's on my computer. Hot Rod. It should be Red Hot. But Hot Rod Lincoln is her blog. And on this, in the blog this week, she was writing about that so many families, they say the statistics are that many of the families who have a Down syndrome baby will end up splitting up. And she said instead it has enriched their life beyond comprehension. That she never understood what love was if it had not been for Lincoln. 
She really didn't grasp the depths of all that there was to being a mother, to being a parent, until she had this special child. Ruth's widowhood allowed her to be free to marry Boaz and eventually to be in the lineage of Christ. Embrace change. If Ruth had not lost her husband, she could never have been in the lineage of the Messiah. Number two, take a chance. Ruth went to the threshing floor. What if Boaz rejected her? What if this other kinsman redeemer came in? She knew Boaz. She trusted Boaz. She had no idea who this other one was. In the New Testament, Jesus 125 times gives these imperatives, these commands. He, He says these things that we would put an exclamation point behind. Do this, do that. 125 times, the most common imperative, the most common command he gives is this. 21 times, one out of six times, he says, don't be afraid, be courageous. Don't be afraid, be of courage. Live courageously, take a chance. The second most common imperative in the New Testament after be courageous is love God and love others. It's only eight times, so almost three, time, three times more than that, Jesus says, Get out there and be, and be of courage. Do we live life taking chances? Not crazy things just to be daring, but how many, how many chances have you taken for the Lord? How many times have you stepped out when you thought this is absolutely insane? In 1991, just before the USSR uh, dissolved, before there was the coup and, and it was overthrown and it changed dramatically, I, was, I had a phone call that spring. And our church was going, there were 20 people going to, to Moscow. We were going to go to Moscow and Kiev and Leningrad. We were going to go to those three, or St. Petersburg. We were going to go to those three places, and we were going to see if we could get arrested because we were taking 5,000 New Testaments illegally into Russia at that point, Russia and Ukraine. And I got this phone call, and I wasn't supposed to go. I didn't have the money to go. I hadn't raised the money to go. I was working a secular job. I was bivocational at the time. And I got this phone call, and, and the, the person on the other end of the line said, listen, this, this woman who is supposed to go, her husband will not let her go because he said it's dangerous. There's too much turmoil going on in Russia right now. He doesn't want his wife to get arrested. So her way is already paid. If you would like to go, you have a free ticket to go on this mission trip to Russia. You have a free ticket to go and see if you can get arrested handing out these New Testaments. My first thought is, that's crazy. My second thought was, I can't get the time off work. The third thought is, even if I have the way paid, then I'm going to miss a couple of weeks' work. I really don't have the vacation time. I don't know what I'm going to do. And, and, I, and I worked through all of these thoughts of why I couldn't go. I didn't have a visa. I didn't have a passport. It was less than six weeks away. I was told I couldn't get a passport in time. I'd never get a visa in time. And the first words out of my mouth were, sure. Why? To this day, I don't know. But what a blessing I would have missed if I had not gone there. Because one day on Arbat Street in Moscow, on one day as we were handing out New Testaments, 2,000 people made professions for Jesus Christ as we gave out New Testaments against every law, with KGB standing there and snapping our picture and warning people if they took the New Testament, they would be hounded by the government, and they stood strong and courageous. We have no idea what it means to stand up for Jesus Christ. And it taught me so much about my faith because the Lord said, take a chance. Matthew chapter 14, we know this story, Peter they're out there, and the, and, and the, the storm is blowing, and, and Jesus is walking on the water, and it looks like he's going to walk by, and they stop him, and they say, Lord, if it's you. 
And then Peter sees it's, it's him, and Peter says, Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Are you kidding me? There's a storm blowing. Ever been out on a lake when there, a real storm is up? Have you ever been caught in a really bad storm in a boat? The last thing you want to do is get out of the boat. And Peter says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. And you say, yeah, but he sunk down in the water. Yeah, but he walked. And 11 others that were in the boat that day never even got out because they didn't take the chance when they got it, when the Lord offered it. Embrace change. Take a chance. The last way to live courageously, especially when you're looking at the future, is to trust completely. Boaz says, what to Ruth? Trust me. I'm going to take care of this. There's someone who is closer than I. There's someone who can redeem you. There's someone who may want to redeem the property, may want to buy the property. But don't worry, Ruth. I'm going to take care of this. And when Boaz, if you read the rest of the book, and I know the ladies have just been through this in their ladies' Bible study, if you read the rest of the book, what you find out is that when Boaz comes to him, he says, would you like to redeem this property? He says, yeah, that's a pretty nice piece of property. I think I'll do that. And Boaz says, oh, by the way, there's a widow attached to it. If you buy the property, you need to marry this woman. And the guy says, well, wait a second. I'm not sure my wife is going to be crazy about this arrangement. I'm not sure that this is going to work out that well for me because, you know, then there may be some question about who inherits what. So let's, uh, you know, I, Boaz, if you want to do it, and Boaz says, oh, yeah, I want to do it. And Boaz pictures the kinsman redeemer that we have, Jesus Christ. And he saw us, and he saw that we had no hope for the future. He saw that we didn't have anywhere to go, and he saw that we were desperate in our straits, and he came to us, and he says, listen, you don't really have very many options here, so I'm going to give you some options. I'll pay for everything wrong you've ever done, and I will buy you back out of the marketplace. It's like you've been sold as a slave, and I'm going to pay the price and take you out of that marketplace. And you know what? I'm going to make sure that you have a future. I'm going to build you a home, John 14, if I go... I'm going to prepare a home for you, and I will come back. And I'm going to make a home for you, and, and I'll die for you, and I will love you, and I will, you'll be the bride of Christ, it says. And there's going to be this huge ceremony, and I'm going to marry you. You're going to be a part of my family. That's what God says to us. And all Ruth had to do was trust Boaz to do what she could not do. Psalm 62, 8 says this, trust in him most of the time. Is that what it says? Trust in him when things are great. Is that what it says? Trust in him when, when everything's going pretty well. Trust in him when the economy is really going. No, trust in him at all times, O oh people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Catherine and I had a, a garage sale yesterday. I'm embarrassed to say that we keep having stuff. It just accumulates at our house. I'm glad it doesn't at yours. Just at our house, okay? We had this garage sale, and we sold things that we thought we could not live without just a few years ago. And we sold them for pennies on the dollar. And if you offered it for $2, people said, would you take a buck? If you offered it for 50 cents, they said, would you take a quarter? If you offered it for a quarter, something you paid maybe tens or twenties of dollars, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 dollars. We offered for a quarter. Would you take 10 cents? No, cheapskate, just buy it. <laughs> oh, I didn't get to say that out loud there, did I? Okay, I said it today. If you came by, I apologize if you did that. We trust in everything other than the, the God of the universe. 
Let me close this with this illustration. I read this. It's, it's not mine. I think it was Max Lucado. Max said that he heard about this man who was a Monopoly champ- champion. There was a world-class Monopoly tournament. He had to play 116 games of Monopoly to win this tournament. First of all, who could stand to play 116 games of Monopoly? That is tough. And it went on for weeks. And there was a big grand prize, $100,000. And and the guy took the grand prize, $100,000. But he asked something that was very strange. Because along the way, he said, when I win my game, if, if I win the game of Monopoly, can I have the Monopoly money from that game? And the organizers thought, well, that's kind of weird, but yeah, that's fine. So he had his little pink bills and his little yellow bills and his little blue bills and all the little different colors that they had and all this Monopoly money. 116 games, he accumulated a huge amount of Monopoly money. I mean, he had whole stacks of hundreds and thousands and tens and fives, and he was so proud of it, and he bundled it together. But even stranger than that is after the last game and they gave him the check, he tucked the check for $100,000 in his pocket and he says, I got to leave. And they said, well, we have this press conference. He said, I don't have time. And he went running off and he went to find an, an investment banker. And he says, I have some money. I've, I've, I've won some money. I need to invest it. And the guy said, well, how much did you get? And he says, well, I have this little $100,000, but that's not the real money. And he pushed all this monopoly money at the investment banker. And he says, I want to invest this. And then he started emptying his pockets. And he had green hotels. And he had red hotels. And he had houses. And he, and he says, and I have deeds of land. And he had Broadway and Park Place and, and Illinois Avenue. And he had all of these things. And he put them out there. And the investment banker says, are you crazy? You can't, this has no value. This, you can't cash this stuff in. Now, y'all are standing there, sitting there, and you're thinking, this is the stupidest story I've ever heard. But the truth is, if you're investing in anything other than what God has said to invest in, you're just as foolish as the person who tried to turn in his monopoly money. Because everything that we have will one day be gone. I've never seen a funeral hearse a, a, a hearse that a funeral car that has a towing rig on it so you can pull a U-Haul. You don't get to take it with you. Or as they said about a very, very wealthy man one time, a reporter was asking the lawyer, how much did he leave? And the lawyer said, he left it all. He left it all. What are you trusting in today? Embrace change. Take a chance. And trust in the only one who will give you the courage to live in a way that will ever, forever change who you are. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for who you are. Thank you for your goodness and your grace that overwhelms us day after day. Father, we did not deserve any of what you have done. And it's so easy for us to begin to trust in our own ability in what we have made, in what we have done, in what we have said, in what we've accomplished. But the truth is, Father, one day we will stand before you and all of that will be stripped away. And the only question that will come before us is what have we done with your son? Forgive us, Father, for ever looking at anything else as worthwhile of serving. Father, we want to be courageous people. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but we know that you do, and we trust you for today 
and tomorrow and next week and next month. We trust you with our children, with our grandchildren, with our marriages, with our businesses, with our homes, with our life savings. Father, we trust you because you still lead in those areas that we can't fathom what's happening. Thank you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.